Water is essential for life. This is not a profound statement, but how easily we put it out of our minds. That is until the shower won't get hot, the dishwasher breaks, the washing machine doesn't work. In sub-Saharan Africa, 35% of the population has access to 20 liters of water a day, a little more than five gallons. The remaining 65%, even less water. And in East Africa, Years of severe drought conditions has dramatically reduced access to food and water. Just reading the news, the UN saying that they predict you know, 1.4 million children will die in the region due to starvation. To put five gallons a day in perspective, the average bath holds 36 gallons. Showers can use up to five gallons of water each minute. I use around one gallon of water each time I wash my hands. All in all, the average North American uses 100 gallons of water every day. To address this great need to supply more water in East Africa, a team of Canadian geophysicists, funded in part by Geoscientists Without Borders, a charitable organization that supports humanitarian applications of geoscience around the world, traveled to the Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya. This is the story of passionate geophysicists working alongside driven refugees and locals while using deep expertise in the science, along with one man's tenacity and persistence, to bring water to 140,000 people in East Africa. In this episode of Seismic Sound Off, what happened when geophysics went to Kakuma? The Kakuma camp is the second largest refugee camp in the world. It is also the closest camp to the world's fastest growing refugee crisis in South Sudan. It's really hot. It's really dry, dusty. It's probably the worst place for a refugee camp to be. The landscape is, I mean, it's harsh, but it's spectacular in this desert in this basin surrounded by recent volcanic mountains and this remote corner of northwest Kenya, um, you know, near the remote corners of Uganda and, and South Sudan. And you're, in this, you're in the most bizarre landscape and the most remote corner of, of the world. That last voice is Paul Bowman, the leader of this team of Canadian geophysicists. This remote corner of the world is located in Turkana County in northwestern Kenya. Turkana County is the largest and most impoverished county in Kenya. The local population is largely comprised of nomadic herders from the Turkana community. Turkana people, which are the native people to that region, they herd their goats or um, donkeys or whatever livestock they, they have camels to, and they, and they move them around to whatever vegetation is available to eat. But they struggle to find water every day, every day for themselves and also for their livestock. Everything in terms of the aid goes to the refugee people, which are from outside areas, from other countries. And so there's a bit of a clash in terms of the Turkana seeing as these people are getting help and we're getting nothing and we're living in a dire situation because Turkana is not the most pleasant of places. It's a desert and it's pretty harsh environment and it's pretty hard to live in. 185,000 refugees call the Kakuma camp home. 18 different countries are represented. 58% of the population come from the newest country in the world, South Sudan. You look out on this camp that stretches forever, a couple hundred thousand people in the middle of the desert, living in these unspeakable conditions. 
you know, there's long lineups to get your drinking water every day from the water taps. You only get one meal per day. You gotta wait all day for that. They don't have jobs and they're totally relying on this elusive groundwater resource um, that they don't know much about. It's sort of a mystifying thing for them. On the plane ride over Chikikuma, I was sitting next to Paul and I was watching Mad Max and he leans over, he puts his head in front of my screen and he says, hey, that looks like Kuma. And I was just like, oh no, what have I gotten myself into? You just can't believe, you're just in shock. You just can't believe um, there's a place like this on the planet. And then, you know, you start to think about things about yourself as well. You start to think about, well, I mean, this is hard on them. Like, so what are we going to be doing while we're surviving here? Like, what are, what are the sources? Like, how do people get by here? How do people get food and water and everything else? And how are we going to get it? And then how are we going to even help these people? Kakuma's meaning is a popular line of inquiry for Paul Bowman in the camp. Paul liked to ask what the refugees and locals thought the word meant. The popular response was that Kakuma means nowhere in Swahili. The Turkana students provided several conflicting answers. A plant that is unique to the area, a ridge of hills nearby, the name of a tobacco pouch commonly used by the Turkana. Michael, one of the South Sudanese refugees and instructors for the Water, Sanitation, and Hygiene Program, WASH, said it came from a combination of two words, one meaning farmland, the other meaning of the government. Farmland of the government. But Paul would come to believe another definition from a Kakuma-born refugee that went by Miss Kakuma. Paul led this team of seven Canadian geophysicists, along with a two-person documentary crew, to Kakuma. There's only one goal, just to find water. You're not trying to make money, just trying to find water. You know, we don't get paid. It is our vacation. And you're just totally focused on, on the tasks at hand. So in some ways, it makes it almost like a vacation. Like even though the physical conditions are, are miserable, it's okay. Like you, you only have one thing in mind. That one thing in mind was to find water. Paul has worked for over 35 years on projects ranging from exploration for tunnels, exploration for unexploded bombs, exploration for ancient burials, really anything that someone may want to find without digging or drilling. Paul first arrived in the Kakuma refugee camp two years before he conceived of this project. He was invited by a nonprofit organization, Israaid, to teach water and sanitation, the WASH program, and help the refugees get jobs. Refugees are not allowed to work outside the camps, and the WASH program helps refugees earn money. The two weeks he was there, turned out to be very eventful. Perhaps the two most eventful weeks in, in the history of the Kakuma camp. There was uh, some very in, intense violence. There was also a um, major flash flood, some rainstorms in the middle of the desert in the main lager. And uh, not only were people killed and houses washed away, but it, it ripped out a portion of the water system and got a better feel of problems with the water system, the challenges, not enough water, not enough wells, well construction problems increasing salinity in some of the wells. But not only did I see the problems, I, I saw some potential solutions. So when I came back, and I immediately, within a couple of days, wrote a proposal and sent that to uh, GWB. GWB, Geoscientists Without Borders, approved his proposal. Now Paul had to gather his team. How would Paul convince six other geophysicists to, in Paul's words, turn their vacation time for a trip to Kakuma? 
A journey that takes 60 hours by plane, only to be followed with a four-hour van ride over one of the most dangerous roads in the world. I was more than happy to jump with a chance to volunteer and spend my time, and water, in my mind, is the, the biggest issue in the world. I was looking for adventure, I was looking for a chance to apply my geophysical background in kind of a, a new and different way, something not related to industry. And he started putting together a grant for Kutuma. I knew right away that I wanted to be involved in this opportunity. Now, when it came to do the project, you know, he, he was asking for seven volunteers to give up two weeks of their vacation time to go over there and everyone I mean it was competition to go everyone wanted to go because I'd seen what Paul had done in Kakuma the previous year and what he'd done on previous projects. Paul was joined by Landon Woods, Aaron Ernst, Randy Shinduke, Doug McLean, Colin Miazga, and Franklin Koch, all who connected at Advision in Calgary, Canada. The geophysics team was also joined by a two-person documentary crew Brendan O'Brien and Josie Bowman, Paul's daughter. Alistair McClymont helped arrange the shipment of 16 wooden crates of geophysical equipment, weighing 1,400 kilograms, to Kakuma. So with the full team signed on, they took the 60 hours plus journey from Calgary to Kakuma to find water. In addition to the issues Paul discovered on his first trip to Kakuma, there also was a lack of understanding of the science below the ground. At that point, there really wasn't a whole lot known about the geology and hydrogeology of the area. So even though the Lost Boys started coming to Kuma in 1991, 1992, and the camp had been operating for 25 years, it was still largely operating in a, in a crisis mode. And they have very limited funding and efforts of their funding is just to do what they have to do to keep people alive. So what does keeping people alive during a crisis look like? You see everywhere people hauling water. They're hauling, they're rolling jerry cans. They're hauling jerry cans on their heads. They're pushing jerry cans of water on their, in their wheelbarrows. They're digging in the lager like for these, and scooping water from these filthy, what were called scoop holes that are also used by goats and camels and, and cows. And, and it's insane, the scene. These scoop holes, as Paul called them, are full of disease. Malaria is a major issue in the camp. E. coli can be growing in these scoop holes where both goats, donkeys, and humans drink from. While the Turkana likely know that water out of these shallow scoop holes is dangerous, they have no other choice. It costs around five cents to fill a 20-liter jerry can from the town water pump. For many Turkana, this is either more money than they have or more money than they are willing to spend. And then as you're there a few days and then you actually realize what's going on, you hear the numbers and the statistics and you see how desperate things are, you, you realize as, as bad as things look, they're, they're, they're worse. Within this desperate situation, Paul and his team also hope to address another major problem with the water that is available, too much fluoride. Every well in Kakuma had fluoride concentrations at or above the World Health Organization's standard. High fluoride concentrations in the water can lead to toxic effects in what is known as fluorosis. Fluorosis can impact your teeth or more adversely your bones. Skeletal fluorosis can start with stiffness and pain in the joints and lead to more crippling issues such as osteosclerosis, the calcification of tendons and ligaments, and bone deformities. So it was important to not only find water for the growing camp, 
but find water that was actually healthy to drink. What is a refugee? How did they get to Kakuma? You might have heard the term refugee, asylum seeker, internally displaced person. These all have exact definitions. A refugee is someone who has been forced to flee his or her country because of persecution, war, or violence. There are currently 22.5 million refugees in the world, the highest number in history. The Kakuma camp first opened in 1991 to provide a place of refuge for the lost boys of Sudan. Dave Eggers wrote a gripping biography of one of the lost boys, Valentino Dang. The book describes Dang's four-year journey to Kakuma, starting when he was just eight years old. The book, called What is the What?, served as a common reference point for the team. Started working on this project, and then Paul had mentioned to me, had asked me if I'd read this book called What is the What? And I realized, you know, light bulb went on. Yeah, I read that book a few years ago. Of course, the story of one particular person, a last boy, Achak Deng, and and his journey for, for years as a, as a child uh, across the, the deserts and jungles and swamps of South Sudan and then into Ethiopia and, and finally, finally getting to Kakuma. And I, I guess what's, you know, there's a lot of things really powerful in the book, but one is just, of course, the story is so incredible. I mean, almost beyond belief. And, but nevertheless, that's, that's the story of every person in that camp has a similar story. Around 2 million people were killed and millions more displaced by the Second Sudanese Civil War. South Sudan became an independent nation in 2011. Sadly, civil war broke out again in 2013 and continues to this day. Some refugees have lived in the camp since it first opened in 1991. Some refugees have lived their entire life in the Kakuma camp. The stakes were high for Paul Bowman and his team. The team was not here as refugee tourists. Lives would be saved if the team could find water. It really dawned on me when I was at the camp that we're not doing this for nothing. You know, we, we really have, now that we're here and we've got the, the geophysical gear here and all of us have flown over to the camp from Canada that I kind of felt a responsibility at that point that something really good come from it. You know, you're standing there and you see how desperate it is and, and you know, you think you can help. You don't know you can help and you, you think you have the, the skills and you have the equipment and you, you can do it and so why not? Why not? This task would be extremely difficult. The geology of the area is complicated. It's ridiculously complicated. Previous results did not bode well. The fact that the previous six or so wells had been unsuccessful, nevertheless, didn't necessarily bode well for our, for our program. So the geophysics proved technically more challenging than the team expected. Previous results did not signal an optimistic future. However, one advantage Paul's team had over previous water exploration was new technology. Those looking for water previously had been using 1D technology. Paul's team brought over equipment to use 2D, an important scientific upgrade. However, the field work would do its best to keep them from obtaining quality data using this technology. One team member said it seemed like the vegetation was trying to kill you. All of 
lots of vegetation seems to have thorns on it there. Yeah, one day Paul comes trying to scout a line for us and he comes out of the bush and his, his shirt is ripped and he's got blood coming out of his head and we're all like, what happened? In addition to the complex science and daily fieldwork obstacles, low rations impacted how the team had to design the project. The Canadian geophysicists split into two groups each day, but they had to create four groups for the students and Turkana due to their limitations of food and water. First of all, they don't get a lot of drinking water, and second of all, they don't get a lot of food, so their calorie count per day is really low. We had to basically have the uh, refugee workers um, work in shifts. We had a morning crew and then an afternoon crew because it was just uh, the work was too hard based on the nutrition that they were they were getting. They but even with that, they worked really hard and and everyone was just eager to learn. So if the team locates good water well sites using strong science and good data and overcome the hot climate and daily grind of field work, what next? Will their scientific results be used? I was doubtful that we were going to be able to help and provide anything of meaning because the size of the camp and then, I mean, there's so many different parties involved and so much bureaucratic influence in terms of the situation. So it's difficult to say whether what we do is taken to heart and used. I think one of the most frustrating things in geophysics is when you do a survey, do a great job, get good results because you don't always get good results in geophysics and then you find out later that the results weren't used appropriately or um well they didn't take advantage of what the geophysics has shown because you know we definitely recognize the possibility of complete and miserable uh failure and um you know even though we've done our best and we felt we'd done a technically competent and well thought out program we, we could still be wrong For two weeks, they would work night and day to try and find dig sites to bring essential, safe water to the camp. Each day, the same as the day before. Start at sunrise. Load equipment. Sun hat and sunblock and bug spray and lots of water. Breakfast of chai mandazi. Drive to the survey location. Work in the field. Shower. Dinner. Data processing. Sleep. Repeat especially the ever-present Mendazi. Mendazi is basically fried bread, and uh, most some of the guys got to like it. I, I found it a little bit tedious after the first two or three, three Each days, day, so, the oh, same yeah. as the day before. Start at sunrise. Sun hat and sunblock and bug spray and lots of water. Work in the field, shower, dinner, data processing, sleep, Repeat. The team worked with the students from Israel's WASH program, and each team included refugees and the local Turkana. Some describe geophysics as the art of carrying very complex and heavy equipment, 1,400 kilograms in this case, to the far corners of the world, and then dragging that equipment through swamps, jungles, and in this case, deserts. Paul says it's what you do with the equipment that defines the science. We carried out seismic fraction surveys that would clearly identify the top of rock. Even even weathered volcanics were still, we surmise, we hypothesize, would still be higher velocity than 
then the overburden materials, the overburden alluvial materials, and then we carried out 2D resistivity, or what many would call electrical resistivity tomography, or electrical resistivity imaging. Paul goes on for a while. He really loves the science behind this work, but I will do a non-technical summary. The team performed two types of surveys, seismic refraction and electrical. The seismic part defines the top of the rock and whether the rock is fractured or massive. The electrical part identifies whether the pore spaces of the rocks are filled with fresh water or salt water. The team used what geological data they could find on past wells, but had to make their own way most of the time. All three of us geophysicists from Canada are looking at the sand and thinking, how are we going to get electrical current into this much sand? Like in Alberta, it just wouldn't work. We'd be dumping salt water on it for hours. And we ran our first electrode test and every single electrode test. And I think we all just stood there with our mouths open. We were like, what is going on? We were continually changing the plan on the ground. So we'd have a plan to do a survey line in a specific area because it was close to a well that had been drilled and we knew it was a good water well and we had a borehole log for it so we knew the geology and the well. But then you get on the ground there and then you realize that you couldn't do a line in the specific area you wanted so you had to come up on the fly with a, a new plan. It's, it sounds like it's not a big deal but it actually becomes really challenging. Five days into the trip, the team would come face-to-face with how challenging simply staying alive in this forgotten area could be. Paul was out in the field, about 20 kilometers west of the camp, working in the future expansion area. It was the end of the day, and Paul's group was driving back to the compound. First we just heard shooting, and then we heard it was automatic weapon fire. My, my daughter was filming in, a, in another portion of the, of the camp that day, and we were you know, heading towards the epicenter where, where the, the shooting was. And my initial main concern was my, my daughter, and um, yeah, actually nobody knew where she was. I didn't know where she was. After driving into the compound, Paul met a senior woman with a UN refugee agency who had been working in South Sudan in Iraq. He asked her what was going on. She just looked at me and she just said, AK-47, 120, 150 meters. I mean, she heard all this before. And in fact, a couple nights later at bar, after a few drinks, she pulled up her shirt to a midriff where, where she had two bullet wounds. So she certainly knew the sound of gunfire. Paul's daughter was still nowhere to be found. He kept searching the compound and found her sleeping. She slept through it all and, and she was in a one of the few concrete buildings. She's probably one of the safest people there, even though she's maybe 100 meters from the shooting. Now that he could take a breath, Paul wondered what led to the AK-47 gunshots. He was able to put together the story later. According to reports, a Turkana woman had brought her son to a clinic in Kakuma town for treatment. A nurse diagnosed the boy with malaria and gave him a dose of quinine. Most of the people in town speak Swahili, However, many Turkana only speak Turkana. A second nurse arrived and without consulting the Turkana mother, possibly due to this language gap, gave her son another dose of quinine. He died immediately. At that point, um, word very quickly spread through through Kakuma and through the Turkana community. Hundreds of Turkana started coming into town with their guns. The Kana 
county is supposedly it's most heavily armed place on the planet and people use them and they just came into town with their assault rifles and, and police then came into town and with weapons as well and police started shooting off some weapons and the kind of started shooting up their weapons the kenyan police also fired tear gas to break up the crowd while tensions remained high for the next few days no additional harm was reported. Her son was five years old. In a place where one's hold on life can be so tenuous, the tragic loss of a child can also make room for the nature of kids that bring out smiles everywhere. In late afternoon, thousands of school kids would be released and go out to play soccer, practice kung fu moves, and tag along with any geophysical survey that might be taking place. I just got a real kick out of them because, I mean, here are these kids that are in this refugee camp and, they're, and they were just like kids anywhere in a lot of ways. They would come up and ask us all sorts of questions and want to know what we were doing and, uh, and they would even help us, even though we told them they didn't need to, but they would pick up electrodes for us and geophones and they would start carrying our gear for us from survey location to survey location <laughs> just for the heck of it, I think, because they were looking for something to do. They wanted to see what was on our iPad screen. They wanted us to take pictures of them. And then we would start to pick up equipment and all of a sudden, all of our electrodes would have disappeared. The, the kids will, would have picked them all up for us. And uh, somehow I think we got most of them back eventually. So there's just thousands of little children everywhere. And so we're doing these surveys. And of course, you know, kids, they're just curious people. So they want to grab things and touch things and help as much as they can. And we have cables and, uh, you know, we're putting electricity into them, so we're, we got to make sure that we're not shocking anybody or anything like that. But it was fun. I mean, everyone was having a good time and they were curious and it was amazing to see these people doing these weird things that were, you know, we're laying cable on the ground and pounding steel rods into the ground and then for seismic, you know, we're, we're hammering the ground with a giant weight drop off the back of a truck. And so it's all, I mean, it's weird to most people, let alone in the middle of the desert in Kenya. Even with these moments of levity, the team was in Kakuma to do serious science and teach the refugees and locals how to continue the work after the team left. And this required patience. I found if you did have patience and, you know, you just kept doing things and you could show them things. I found visual communication was one of the biggest helpful tools we had out there. Learn by doing. Realistically, all you have terms of support out there are other people so losing your patience with them is probably not going to put you in a very happy situation. The students were so incredibly keen to learn they wanted to get everything out of this opportunity that they possibly could and honestly by the end by the time we left they could have done the program without us they didn't need us anymore. The refugee and Turkana students picked up the work very quickly operating the GPS units the seismic source laying cable placing geophones and doing all the elements of the field work that the geophysicists did, including excelling at a few skills not possessed by the professional geophysicists, like chasing goats off the line and spooking camels from eating the cables. Paul stayed behind a few extra days to finalize their work with the UN. This would prove to be one of the most important decisions of the trip. You know, one of the great things about geophysics, one of the things I really like about it is you can go out, plan a program, collect the data, process the data, interpret it, and present 
to the client. And, and I, we had already finished all the preliminary processing. I, I wanted to make sure that the client really saw that we did what we said we were going to do. When I say the client, UNHCR. As Paul was getting ready to leave, another person who had become a close friend of Paul's was also deciding to leave, Michael. Michael, the South Sudanese refugee and WASH all-star, and also the same person who offered Paul a definition of Kakuma he didn't quite accept. He was choosing to go back home to South Sudan. He had lived in the camp for nine years and was ready to go home and see his father. There's opportunities to get out of the camp. They seem to be disappearing. He hadn't got a he hadn't got a visa to go to a, another country. Um, he was hoping to get a university scholarship to a, another country, Israel, or the states, or Canada. None of those had come through. And been nine years since he'd been in South Sudan. He wanted to go back. Given up in the camp, he didn't see a, a future there. He wanted to see his family. He wanted to see his father. So he, he had decided to make a break and and give it a go. These types of decisions are momentous. He was leaving his home of nine years. He may be heading home only to face new dangers. Before he embarked for South Sudan, he invited a few of his close friends, Paul, Paul's daughter, and co-workers from Israel. And they made a great couscous dish, uh, and he bought some cold soft drinks, um, and, you know, it's all astounding because they, they have no money. I mean, these, none of these refugees have no money. They don't have nearly enough food for, for themselves. I mean, their rations can dip as low as 500 calories a day, and they're usually around 1,200 calories a day. And, and you just have to look at the people to believe it. It's not unusual for what rations the refugees do get to be traded away for other essential items. They need SIM cards so they can communicate with their families back home. They may need to trade some rations to simply ground the maize they do have. Rations can be particularly difficult for single men like Michael. You know, they have higher caloric needs, and you, and you can think of a, a family, for instance. Everyone gets the same rations, so you might have a six-month-old baby and a 70-year-old man, and, and they're all going to get the same ration card. Families will stretch out what rations they do receive by pulling them together. So the six-month-old baby and a 70-year-old man's rations can be pulled together to provide others in the family who might need more food. This is not an option for Michael. So you are invited to a dinner party in a refugee camp. The typical standards of a bottle of wine or flowers do not apply. What do you bring? Yeah, we brought some soft drinks. We brought up a couple kilos of rice and we brought uh, four liters of cooking oil. All things that, you know, desperately need in the camps and um suddenly that I mean nobody ever begged or asked me for anything. You know, people have a lot of self respect and they have respect for NGOs and people they're they're working there. I mean they realize they're there to help and they're they're not they're just, just giving out handouts. Michael's father lived in Unity State in South Sudan. Michael set out to return home. Of course, he doesn't just jump in a plane and, and fly to Juba. He um, he has to take the bus up to the Lokachogio border, cross into South Sudan, avoid the Dinka. Very tough for someone like him that um, came into the camp when he was very when he was a young boy, a very young man, because he doesn't have the newer tattoos that identify him as a newer. So the Dinkas look at him, they would see him as a newer and potentially kill him. The newers might see him without the tattoos and not recognize him as a newer and potentially kill him. Shortly after he went up to South Sudan, the violence very quickly escalated. 
and he wasn't able to get back to Unity State. And I think in a snow, well, it's now a year. I think he's been in a to an IDP camp, an internally displaced persons camp, where he sent me some photos. I mean, again, you know, very miserable, even more miserable conditions than what he fled from. Thankfully, Michael's training and education with Paul and Israel continue on. Michael is now teaching water and sanitation training with an NGO in his new camp. And I, and I just heard from just actually a couple of days ago where he's still in the IDP camp near Juba. Um, you know, sounding actually quite positive, nevertheless. And um, of course, in the midst of the South Sudan Civil War, which is still raging um, right now, absolutely raging. The team's work was completed in January 2016. Paul didn't want to leave Kakuma without doing everything he could to make sure the team's work would be taken seriously. I mean, he was just hounding people and just repeatedly calling people. He would show up on the doorstep of the offices of key UN personnel in the camp, really to get things done. And that was critical for the follow-up work. So they went in, they did the geophysics, got some nice results. But then those results are great, but if you don't use them, then it would have all been a waste of time. And Paul made sure the UN got the results, gave them targets where to drill, explained clearly why they should drill there. And yet, even with these clear explanations, February passed, March passed, April passed, May passed, no word. Finally, in June 2016, the team received word from the UN. I was surprised and very happy. Once we found out that there had been some successful wells, I think everybody breathed a sigh of relief and everybody was was really happy. I was pretty excited. It felt pretty good. Yeah, when they heard when we heard that they drilled the three successful wells, and uh, yeah, it was it was a pretty exciting moment. Based on their report, three wells had been drilled. All three were high-flowing, successful wells. It's been over two and a half years since the team was in Kakuma. I asked them now that they had had some time to reflect, what was the biggest thing they learned during their time? I thought about this question a lot. You sent it to me a couple days ago, and a hard one to answer. I think I just learned about uh, we all want the same things. We want a good life for our kids. We want to be able to put food on the table. We want an education. And I think that refugees in general, I think in, in the Western world, they're this different other thing. And we think, you know, they just want to come to our country. And, and you know, they don't. They want to go home. Most people want to go home. I think for me, that. You know, they taught me a lot, but just just understanding their humanity, they're just like me. Pretty powerful. I asked them what it was like to work in Kakuma for two weeks and then return back to their own life in Canada. It's hard. It's hard. Um, you, see, you see people living with absolutely nothing, and you see the excess of our society, and you want to change, but it is all too easy. You can just fall back into your old routine and your old life, so it's... You know, it's not a completely hopeless situation that there's refugees, situations like this all over the world, and that hopefully we can help them more, be more inviting. I think people might not realize just how much, how helpful that could be to go 
you know, we often see doctors without borders or these other medical type interventions going on and they get a lot of media coverage and praise. But really this this project really shows me that these basic basic things like water and infrastructure are just as important. Together, the three new wells can supply 20 liters a day of safe, healthy water for 140,000 people. However, given the UN Refugee Agency's practice of pumping wells for 10 hours daily, these wells will provide water for 57,000. The need continues to grow. The 2018 food harvest in South Sudan is the worst on record. With fighting continuing in South Sudan, the flow of refugees into Kakuma will only continue. You know, you look at the world today, like like so many of the big problems, the massive problems in the world, the geophysics is a part of all of these solutions. You know, geophysics is an important role, and, and so many of these, well, these problems are just, they morph into humanitarian disasters. And when the humanitarian crisis comes on, there's never a geophysicist involved, or very rarely, because it's dealt in a, in a crisis manner. So there's a drought or famine. Drill rigs come in, NGOs come in, they pound out holes, they, they throw in pumps. And in that process, vast amounts of money get wasted. Lots of dry holes get drilled, lots of salty holes, screens are poorly placed. There's, you know, all that, the science stuff gets, gets thrown out the window in the mayhem to keep people alive. This Geoscientists Without Borders program, it creates the foundation, you know, enough money to get some real science, specifically geophysics, into some of these crises that that desperately, desperately need it. I mean, they so desperately need it, they, they they can't even see it. So what does Kakuma mean? What definition did Paul accept? It came from a well-spoken 20-year-old Kakuma-born actress and another WASH all-star that was known as Miss Kakuma, Teresa. Teresa noted that Kakuma is a Dinka word of South Sudan, describing this area of northwestern Kenya, this Turkana region, when Dinka and others were exiled here in the years before Kenyan independence in 1964. She said that it means the place where you will be punished. And often, even though the plight seems, seems desperate, you know, they're, they're just dealing with things with this incredible resilience that, that's actually inspiring. For the longest time, I was unsure about how I felt about the work that we did there. I mean, I think I was glad that I did it, and I was just unsure whether it had an impact. And then just hearing that we did something that did help these people was, was really, I guess, heartwarming, I guess. Makes me want to do more. It's nice to have an opportunity to share our experiences and just to tell people about Kakuma and what's going on there and that these people exist. Because of the team's successful results and follow-up reports, the UN asked Paul to take on another water project. In October 2017, Paul and several members of the Kakuma project traveled once again to find groundwater. This time, they were searching for water in the largest refugee camp in the world. At seg.org slash podcast, you will find the show notes, photos, and links to dig deeper into the Kakuma Water Project and Paul Bowman's work. Every June 20th marks World Refugee Day. To learn more, visit our show notes or go to un.org. 
2018 marks the 10-year anniversary of the SEG Foundation's Geoscientists Without Borders program. Help us spread the word of this humanitarian project and share this episode with your friends and colleagues. The more that people learn about Geoscientists Without Borders, the better our chances of funding more projects like this one. As a special consideration to our listeners, the SEG encourages you to become a partner in this life-changing program by making a donation through the SEG Foundation. The SEG Foundation currently has GWB matching funds available, so double your impact today by making a donation. Please visit seg.org GWB to donate to this amazing program. The SEG Foundation would also like to thank founding sponsor Schlumberger for its foresight and leadership in helping establish the GWB program. Schlumberger strives to be a unifying force for social and environmental stewardship and engages in philanthropic activities that reflect the company's values. As the founding sponsor of GWB, Schlumberger believes in the science of geophysics to affect positive changes in communities facing environmental hardship and natural hazards. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews bring a smile to our faces. Subscribe to Seismic Sound Off on the podcast app of your choice to receive the latest episodes first. Music in this episode, courtesy of Epidemic Sound. Additional sound was provided by Brendan O'Brien. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary. Thank you to the SEG podcast team, Jennifer Crockett, Beth Donica, Ali McGinnis, Mick Sweeney, and Adrian White, as well as SEG staff members Katie Burke and Linda Ford. And a huge appreciation to Paul and his team for speaking with me. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.